Thursday, April 23rd, and welcome back to another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. Uh, joined, as always, with a currently in transit with a four-wheeler and the boat, Tom Stevens. Tom, how are you doing, buddy? Man, every day is a holiday. Tom, it's better worry, and better, Trey. Tom, Tom is riding shotgun. He is not driving while towing boats. No, nope, safe, safety first. <laughs> and we are, we are joined today by, by my good friend and multiple-time sparring partner on uh, Kentucky Newsmakers, Christian Motley. Christian, how you doing, buddy? I'm, I'm doing better than I deserve, man. Glad to be here. Uh, Christian, you, you were just, as a brief rundown uh, for people who may not know you, you want to give a little bit of, of your background real quick? Oh, man, I'm just a guy in Lexington. <laughs> yeah, but why would we? Why would we be having? Do you want a political podcast? I, I've got. I, I would say I have more than a passing interest in uh, in politics in Kentucky. I, I cut my teeth working campaigns. Uh, Jack Conway in ten, Bashir in eleven. I uh, spent some time in the Obama campaign. Came back and was the political director for the Kentucky Democratic Party for a while, uh, and 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 even got a chance to to, to do some work in the sixteen primary. So it's a uh, it's been a fun decade. We're, we're, we're out of politics uh, uh, on the campaign side these days. Um, but, you know, again, still a little bit more than a passing interest. So they let me get on and argue with Trey a little bit from time to time. <laughs> it's, 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 hey. ni- it's nice to be out of politics where you can just, you can just ar- you know, parachute in and argue every now and then and not actually yeah. working at it. <laughs> hey, is there any chance I could see my own opposition research file? <laughs> 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 Never mind. Bye, bye. Text me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I think the first time I came in contact with Christian, actually, uh, a, a friend of the podcast and and uh, uh, past guest, uh, Matt Irwin, described Christian as as uh, part of the future of the Democratic Party. So, oh, that's high praise. Uh, well, Christian, you know, I, 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 we were talking about before the podcast, before we started taping, uh, you know, we've kind of changed up our format here in, in, uh, in interest of the, of the kind of decreased news and things to talk about with the, uh, with the COVID crisis going on. So we've been kind of starting them all off with just kind of asking, what have you been doing, man? How are you keeping busy? You know, I, I, you know, I called my mom the other day and had to tell her, you know, I've had more vegetables, um, uh, than I've had in a long time. I've been doing a little bit of cooking, <laughs> Trey. And I, I've only burned myself once, so uh, well, so far so good. Edelman was on two weeks ago, and, and Adam said he he had uh, uh, battle scars from uh, from cast iron. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's I I have thus thus far avoided it and all the cooking I've been doing at home, but uh, I'm sure it'll it'll come eventually. But you know, when when you're when you're married to a physician, you have to learn how to cook because. <laughs> got to earn your keep. Got to earn your keep around the house, man. I hear that. <laughs> uh, I mean, other than that, you know, talk about the the kind of groups you work with in town. Are you all still kind of active doing stuff? Uh, you know, out in the community. Yeah, you know, there there are a few things that I've been um, working with in the past. I think you may have known I work with a group called New Leaders Council, yeah, in Kentucky. And you know, I'm, I'm I I am director emeritus now. I'm in uh, <laughs> my retirement. Um, it's a uh, you know, if, if folks know Leadership Kentucky, you know, here in Lexington, we've got something called Leadership Lexington. Uh, New Leaders Council is something very similar to that. 
um, except it's um, it's for uh, millennials, progressive millennials. It's statewide and it's free. And so those folks get together uh, uh, five times between January and, and June. So you can imagine they're they're trying to adjust to this new context uh, with virtual meetings. Um, yeah, yeah. That I work with them. I'm I'm on the board for Big Brothers Big Sisters, and you know we're doing our best. I'm a couple boards actually here here in the city, and you know again we're trying to navigate this thing. I'm glad that we're able to keep our doors open. Um, uh, I think we have. Uh, we, we might talk about SBA loans here a little bit later. Um, I know that's something that we had taken a look at, and I'm, I'm glad that we're able to continue to serve the community, um, particularly our our young kids during this time. Yeah, I mean, that's important. You know, we're obviously, you know, my family's lucky enough that we, you know, we do all right. And I'm able to, I have a job that allows me to stay at home and, and we can have babysitters kind of come in every now and then to, to help out when I'm busy. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of families don't have that. And it's, it's important to, uh, to make sure we're, we're not losing people kind of, kind of in the shuffle. That's right. Um, I will get to kind, of, to kind of the standard questions we've been asking. I guess I'll start with, uh, you know, everybody seems to be, I, got, I saw the new subscriber numbers for Netflix the other day. It's a, uh, man, good Lord, I'd love to have some stock in that right now. Yeah. Uh, so what, 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 what have you been watching? Been streaming anything good? You know, man, I, uh, uh, the two shows that I've been watching pretty heavily here recently, one, I have to give a shout out to my friend from Florence, Kentucky, Akila Hughes. Uh, she's she's a, a fellow Berea College alum. Um, living the Hollywood life. She's out in LA now, but she, she uh, was on a show called Bob's Burgers as yeah. a voiceover. Uh, I had not yet watched that show. And so I watched the episode that she was a part of. And then I started episode one uh, and have uh, been watching Bob's Burgers. I'm between that and this new show called uh, Mrs. America. I, I, I was saw, uh, I think it was, there was an ad for that on while I was watching a YouTube video today. Yeah. I'm I, So I had not been really familiar with, um, what is her name? Phyllis? Schlafly. Yeah, Phyllis Schlafly. So I'm, I'm learning quite a bit about her and, and some of the things she was getting into um, related to the ERA. And I'm, I'm, oh yeah, I think I'm still on track. I've, I've watched all four episodes. You know, and, and there's and, also these other like historical components, the Shirley Chisholm uh, run for president and, you know, Betty Friedan and, uh, you know, just different uh, mothers of this sort of feminist movement. Um, so I'm, I'm learning quite a bit. Two, two kind of interesting stories about Phyllis Schlafly. First, you know, her, I think it's her nephew is the, are the guys who started Schlafly Brewing, uh, the, 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 the brewery. And she actually tried multiple times to sue them to stop using the name Schlafly because she didn't want to be associated with, 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 uh, with beer. Um, but the, the other interesting thing is I, I actually, in 2012, I was, we were doing work for Philip Morris International fighting against uh, the tobacco carve out that was, that was trying to, they're trying to insert into the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And they got me on the speaking list for the, uh, it was the first ever Grover Norquist Wednesday morning meeting held outside of DC. They had one in Tampa during the 2012 convention. And they had me slotted to speak about this, this, you know, trade issue uh, in between Sam, uh, Sam Brownback uh, before me and Phyllis Schlafly after me. And, uh, and I asked uh, Grover Norquist, I, I said, well, Grover, I said, you sure you want me to speak in between, you know, Sam Brownback and Phyllis Schlafly? He said, yeah, yeah, we need, we need filler in between the celebrities. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Watson made good. I see. Uh, I like that. <laughs> it, it, was, it was entertaining, but, uh, I, I have to check out the, 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 the Miss America thing, you know, uh, we, my wife and I agree on very few shows. So yeah, that, that uh, might be something that she would. 
she would, you know, she, she always says, I don't want to watch anything that's stressful. So I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know what the heck that entails then. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did, what, so what are, what are you reading? Uh, either, either in print or listening to audiobooks. You, you've got any, any good recommendations for people? Yeah. You know, so I, I'll mention two. One is, um, you know, I picked up like so many other folks who are trying to, you know, go out and see the sun every once in a while uh, <laughs> while we're, while we're in at the home is, uh, I picked up running. Yeah. And I started reading the book by this guy named David Goggins, who is one of these people who runs like 50 mile yeah, races, the, the ultras. mile races. Yeah. Very interesting story of, uh, just like his, his, uh, early childhood and just some challenges he went through and, how he channeled that into this odd rage um, that <laughs> has powered his, uh, um, you know, he's a champion, you know, runner as, as a part of these competitions. The, the second book is uh, from a guy named Eric uh, Kleinberg, who some folks may know from uh, a book he wrote with Aziz Ansari about modern love. Um, but yeah, he, yeah. He, it's called Palaces for the People. And uh, it's about, uh, social infrastructure so what are the spaces where you know we can connect with each other um which is an interesting read given our current context where <laughs> we're, we're social distancing yeah you know th th those, those guys that run ultra marathons are insane my, my wife runs marathons and like you know i think she's run three or four now and i mean it's like a complete full body breakdown at the end of at the end of a regular marathon i couldn't imagine people that that run ultras i mean and you have and you have some people that i mean there's there's one guy who set a record he ran a marathon on every continent in in a week like oh good lord well like what goes through? how do these people do this <laughs> I, have, I have no idea I don't, and it's like who's chasing you that you want to do that <laughs> nothing about it makes any sense it's uh yeah it's you know, I, I, you know, I was very proud of myself a couple of weeks ago when I was able to string two miles together. So. <laughs> you know, I, I ran, I ran cross country in middle school and was, it was like, you know, pretty highly ranked in the county. This is when I was going to public school and, and uh, we got to the end of the season every year and they thought I had two years ago, they thought I had mono because I, I couldn't get out of bed. I, you know, so they were giving me tests for anemia, for mono, everything you can imagine. So sixth grade, it happened, seventh grade, it happened. And, and I was like, well, I, I got to get healthy because we got the, the, you know, the, the championship countywide meet. He's like, well, what meet? I said, cross country. He said, well, you're just tired. Stop running. That's, that's why you're, that's why your body's breaking down. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's one, um, one story of, uh, the guy, I guess he ran one of these long, a hundred mile race with very little preparation. I think he was, he's a Navy SEAL. I think he thought that, you know, I could jump, just jump in there and kind of do it. Uh, and his body turned on him. I'll let people read the book. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> Come it's, on their own, but. it's as much like training. You think it's about training your legs. It's as much about training your, your kidneys and your bladder and your stomach and everything else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what music you've been listening to? Anything good or podcast? We'll go with either one. Uh, I got a couple of my standard podcasts that I listen to. I like, uh, uh, Hacks on Tap with uh david axelrod and yeah. oh i forget the republican strategists they he, these guys do it together i'll look it up and um the second no, mike, mike mike murphy he's, mike murphy kind of kind of republican apologies <laughs> to mike murphy apologies to mike murphy I, I i like that podcast in 538 
and music you know i, I created a playlist anybody who uh, follows me on twitter or instagram will probably see i've created a playlist that's um pretty wide ranging but it's got my some of my favorite hits man just get me through the day i'm, I'm playing it every day it's got a a little of everything amy winehouse stevie wonder uh yeah a little, a little bit of everything man I, i've been listening to this guy named david byrne who uh He's acoustic. He's got kind of funny songs. He's got a whole whole lot about uh, of quarantine related songs that are they're all, they're all pretty funny. Timely, yeah. <laughs> and I think we talked about it in the last podcast. I'm loving the uh, the book of basketball podcast series where they're doing the, the redrafts of all of the of the, like going back to '96, I think. So they're on. They just did 2003, a full, a full redrafted lottery. Is this but Bill Simmons? Yeah, yeah. I like that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to take a look at that. And that's a that's a good podcast. Uh, the other one I like too, and I, I need to go back and listen to because I just had a new one. Is uh, the Titus and Tate podcast, uh, and they just had Mark Pope on as a guest for the whole podcast, uh, talking about kind of his experiences from UK to the Pacers and now coaching BYU. And I saw today he, he beat out Kentucky for that big seven foot center from Purdue. <laughs> I mean, when you're getting beat out by by not not just BYU but Mark Pope for a recruit, come on, Cal, get with it, man. I, I've heard we are on the market for some transfers. <laughs> we got two already. So uh, I guess last thing you said, you said you've been doing more cooking than normal. What, are, what, what are you cooking or, or what are you, you know, ordering, ordering in going to pick up? My right now, my favorite uh, pickup is, you know, every once in a while I got to make a stop by uh, the summit to get my fix of a uh, crank and boom ice cream. <laughs> uh, they bring it out to the curb. Uh, a blueberry lime cheesecake is my uh, flavor of choice. And in terms of like what I'm eating, it's just a little bit of everything, man. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, <laughs> I get in, I get in the grocery store and, and end up with more stuff than I need probably. Um, you know, I'm not a guy who went to the grocery store a ton prior to, but I feel like, you know, I'm supposed to be sustaining myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we get in the kitchen and we just make do. Yeah. You got to check out uh, Corals has been, Posting a lot about Ryan Quarles has posted a lot about uh, the they've really been working with a lot of the CSAs, the community sourced agriculture, mm-hmm. to to get to get them more technologically technologically savvy to where you can order and, and get set up online. And I'm, I'm oh. thinking about signing up for one of those. Or they'll you know they'll just bring you a basket of veggies once a week or once a month. That's a good call. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a good way to support support local farmers who you know obviously a lot of times they're dependent on farmers markets and those. I think some of them are still running, but. They're, they're a lot lower crowds. I think people are just, you know, nervous about going to them. Yeah. Now, the farmer's market on Southland Drive on Sunday, I did a, did a walk and went through there. And so, like, everything was spaced, like, tractor-trailer distance away from each other. <laughs> and the way that people were going through it, it was a very different vibe than uh, what it traditionally is. Probably fewer dogs there than normal, I, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think part of it, maybe people just weren't expecting it to be there. I, I did the CSA program that was sponsored by uh, Kentucky Proud and Department of Ag last, I guess, last year, starting in the spring. It was a really good experience. I mean, there are times when you start to get some really weird stuff in, like, what do I do with all this rutabaga type of stuff? <laughs> um, but generally, you know, it did it did kind of force me to uh, be a little bit more thoughtful in, in what I did. And it's cool to support locals. So. Yes, yeah, I mean all, all those sorts of subscription things. Like uh, Laura gets me the Carnivore Club, where I get like a box of charcuterie in once a month, and I, I mean I just end up literally I'll just go to people's houses and dump off like nine pounds of chorizo because 
I, I like I like the like the regular chorizo, like you know, fresh chorizo that you'll cook in a in a like a, a breakfast taco or something. But I mean, what am I gonna do with like nine logs of freaking dried chorizo every month? I just it's too much, too much. Can't can't do it. Uh, <laughs> I guess Tom, anything anything you've been you've been uh, uh, eating? Because I know you you still you you're a big local local restaurant guy. Anything you've really been uh, been digging on lately? No, I mean, I, I find myself eating at home more. I've, I've picked a few restaurants where I've got friends and family that I'm trying to, to support them. Uh, the guys that own, kind of an oddball one, the guys that own uh, Mr. Brews in Lexington's a guy I used to work with dating back to my time at Alltech. So I'm trying to support him. Uh, you know, I live pretty close to El Toro would be my local uh, I, know, I know you're a fan of the 32-ounce 30, margaritas. They do. They there. have a 32-ounce margarita to go, which is kind of a cool vibe. Uh, I may have been uh, not cited, but um, uh, had some social counseling one time when I may have gotten a large water to go at the end of my meal that may have subsequently turned into a to go cup. I don't know how that happened, but um, <laughs> now apparently that's just part and parcel of the world that we live in. So it's kind of cool. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any place else really good, you know, I, where I live, um, uh, you know, that those are, those are, close local and, and and good spot so it's it's another thing you know because the restaurant industry in particular is just it it's such a high risk in this environment you know i got tighter margins uh staffing compliments it's really tough for them right now so anything you can do to help them i think is certainly appreciated yeah i mean you know i, I grew up working in restaurants in in the summer during college and in between it's, it's a great i mean Chris, I don't know if you if you ever did restaurant work, but it's a great thing for for political operatives if you're just starting out because you you can kind of hop in and out of it. So when the campaign ends and you're trying to figure out what to do next, you can always go pick up you know five six shifts a week somewhere and <laughs> take a little bit of money in. Oh yeah, I got friends who did the uh, bartending. Yep. Yeah, it's a good little yeah, it's a good little fix. When, I mean, when when you know you're going to be employed every unemployed every November and have no idea what the next source of income is going to be, it's it's nice to have that skill to fall back on. That's right. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's get in the news a little bit here. Uh, let's let's start with just kind of all the all the COVID news there is to talk about. Uh, the first one, big news yesterday. Kentucky's, uh, I guess, substantially expanding their testing capacity. You've got uh, testing clinics coming that are specifically focusing on on uh, low income minority areas in Louisville and Lexington. And uh, the governor now claims that anybody who wants a test can uh, a test can get one. So uh, I think that's. That's the, that's the news we need to start moving towards reopening the economy, I think. I think that's right. I mean, one of the big things that you hear people saying when you hear the, the number of cases is, you know, that people immediately question, you know, is it really, is it more than that? And we don't really know. And so this ability to expand testing, you know, frankly, makes our data better, but also ensures that, you know, folks are getting the care, uh, folks who are sick are getting the care they need and are getting the you know, proper time. Uh, frankly, to themselves, uh, if they need to be quarantined. Well, and, you know, I, I think because the this is such a weird disease. I think as, as we're learning out as we do more research on it, because like if you don't test it at the right time, it's not you could be in the hospital with it, and you're going to test negative because it's already kind of metastasized out of the mucus and where the tests pick it up at, and it is and is elsewhere in your body. It's such a weird, weird test to, or a disease to test that you're getting thirty percent is the number I keep hearing uh, uh, false negatives. It's just a, it's it's a it's a weird disease to test on. You know, I think that's where the Pegasus Institute put out a study the other day, uh, talking about how uh, Tennessee's got four times our population, but uh, I think less uh, 
deaths in us so far. And, and that's, you know, that's why I think the testing numbers and, and positive negative cases, I don't know what to make of those. I think about the only number that you can really f- get a, get a grip on that is close to accurate is probably going to be deaths. But even that, it depends on, it depends a lot on how you're defining a death. Are you, is, are you counting everyone, only people who died because of COVID or are you uh, counting people who died with COVID who would still, who did not die because of it specifically, you know, didn't die because of the disease itself, but would have been alive were it not for that, that one of the other side effects, uh, whether it's, it's, it's messing with your liver functions or messing with your heart, uh, you know, it, this thing does such weird things to immune systems that people are dying because of it, but not, are dying with it but not because of it but some states and and even it it even varies from city and county to 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 each other you know how how you're defining a death uh you know i I just it's hard it's hard for me to put a lot of faith in and and policy making decisions in number you know number of positive negative tests yeah but i do i do think it gives you better evidence to work from you know i I know the Bashir administration put out a set of benchmarks that they were considering, you know, as they work to transition and uh, reopen the economy. And I think, you know, I think one of the numbers was like looking at over the course of two weeks, decreasing cases. I do think it's helpful to be able to have, you know, those sorts of benchmarks to to work from, even if it's not 100 percent accurate. Yeah, I I think as as we as we move further on, I think the the data becomes more uh, trustworthy because it's it's not you know, we could go and test a hundred people. You might get 20 positives, but there might be another 10 positives in there that tested negative. That starts to even itself out. I think, like you said, when you get two weeks into, into that process and you, and you've got a huge number of, of data points rather than a small number of data points. Yeah. I, I do think the, on the, on the death side, you know, as far as I know, Tennessee has not, I love the guys at the Pegasus Institute. They're good friends of mine. You know, using that death data is so strange it's hard it's hard to do because we've had a tremendous amount of deaths at uh at uh at healthcare facility or nursing facilities uh at western hills at green river you know we've got some some internalized clusters that i don't believe tennessee has and that really skews the numbers so it's you know it's, it's hard to just just like it's hard to use uh uh testing numbers and, and positive negative tests to figure out stuff. It's also kind of hard to use the death numbers because you, you get one case in one of those enclosed facilities and it's going to significantly skew your, your fatality rate. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know so about Tennessee's? Go ahead, Tom. I was going to say, I've, I've seen some of the, I guess there were a couple of different studies that have taken place. There was one in Massachusetts and another in California where they were doing more random sampling, like literally people off the street, you know, 200 person, um, groups and then the number of, based on those determinations, the number of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic people that had been identified as having had the COVID, I mean, was was much higher. I mean, like numerous uh, degrees of magnitude different. So it's, it's such a screwy, tough environment right now. There's a study coming out of uh, LA as well saying that, that they think the number of, of asymptomatic cases in, in LA County is significantly higher than anybody had previously mm. thought. And, and, and now you've got the study that shows that the first deaths in, in the country were actually in early, early January in the San Francisco area. Uh, so, you know, kind of people that, were, that have been trying to chase down where this thing got in the country and kind of how it, how it, where it grew from, their entire timeline's off now because 
you've got these two deaths they found from early from early uh, 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 February in, in California, not in Washington, where everybody thought it started off at. It's it's a weird it's a weird disease. Does w- incredibly strange things to the body. Does different things to different different people. Uh, yeah. You know, it's just it's it's a weird one. I think it's going to take time for scientists to to study it to figure out exactly what it is, exactly what it does, and why it does it, and how you stop it. Now, I do, I do think on the positive side, I mean, everybody I talk to is taking it serious. They're taking this thing seriously, and they're doing their best to, you know, mind the social distancing sort of guidance. And you know, when I when I make my trips to Kroger, you know, I see it's all there are kind of kind of signals around the store to let you know. Uh, like I'm thinking about when you go through the checkout line, there's a, a dot <laughs> yeah. uh, for each person to kind of stand on. Um, but even beyond some of those measures, you can kind of see people, you know, kind of doing their best to um, kind of mind the social distancing. Some folks are, you know, starting, I'm starting to see many more masks um, out in public and say what you will about sort of the individual strategies. I just think it is something that we have to take serious. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take, it takes a it takes a village, Christian. It takes a village. <laughs> um, you know, with, with kind of other on the periphery of COVID news, uh, we've got, I guess, at least two nut jobs on Facebook now who have been making threats towards towards the governor. Uh, I mean, just come on, people. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I tweeted yesterday, you know, I, I guess we, I guess we've got to add do not threaten assassination to don't knock doors during a pandemic to the list of things that we have to, I can't believe we have to tell people to do. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is one of those problems with social media where it, it does give everyone a voice and that voice is so easily magnified. And some of these folks just don't need a voice or they only need it between <laughs> like two o'clock in the afternoon and five o'clock. Like they just don't, um, there it's, and I think there's also, you know, there's a really quick to judge thing and, and to reach, and then, it, you know, it's stories and it drives the news cycle process. I don't know what to say. I mean, other than they're just morons and they need to not do that. Social media just desensitizes you to the effects of your speech, I think, because you're saying it into the ether mm. with no one around you to give a comment. That's true. And I, I think, I mean, first of all, I mean, there's no place for that. No. And I think most of us understand it. And I think it was really important. You know, I saw comments, you know, from, bipartisan leaders and you know other kind of community folks and people who just like very quickly were like no there's there's no room for that and I think that was very important because if you leave any space uh, for that kind of sentiment to grow I mean I mean it can literally be dangerous I think it's very important that people were um, calling that out yeah no I absolutely I mean it's just yeah I I can tell you when I when I worked for the party that was I mean I was the first person to jump on the on the attack the messenger train on that one to, just to make sure that people knew that hey rpk is not in any way supportive of this stuff because <laughs> it, you know, it's an important signal to send out both both strategically as, as a political party but you know as a message to send to your to your people like cut it out guys can't, can't, yeah. as, as, as the governor's like we can't be doing that can't be you doing can't that. be doing that man <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you know this an issue popped up brought to my attention recently uh you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier uh, there's an issue going on with, with, the with the, the SBA loans through the, through the CARES Act that businesses that are owned by kind of people that have gone through the second chance system, uh, ex-felons, people that have convictions that are on probation. I think it's, it's, if somebody owns even 20% of your company, uh, that you're, 
there's something in the language of, of the CARES Act that you're not able to get the uh, get those SBA loans. And uh, you know, I, I know I don't don't want to make generalities, but Christian, you know, in communities, a lot of communities that, that you work with, and uh, especially minority communities, that they're just it's a higher percentage likelihood that you're going to have people trying to make something of themselves after having made a mistake. And you know, this is this is a an issue for a lot of those companies, and a lot of them are going to be restaurants and smaller uh, businesses, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure you're probably going to have some contracting businesses, a lot of startup type stuff that they don't have a lot of margin. They need these loans to keep going. And, uh, you know, I think this is a, this is a problem needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I mean, the first thing I would say is I think that, you know, Congress did the right thing by, you know, taking you know, pretty quick action to, you know, support working folks, um, support businesses and expand the safety net. I think we did some some um, some good things here in Kentucky um, uh, in expansions to unemployment, for example. I think those are good things. Um, the SBA loans, uh, which are you know supposed to help um, you know protect payroll for businesses, you know for bills that are like you know mortgages or rents. That stuff is really important. And I think you know particularly as it relates to you know second chance citizens. Second chance got to mean a second chance, and um, I don't think that the, their businesses are any less important than uh, than anyone else. And I think that there, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot that was inequitable about you know the SBA a loan process. I mean, some of it just has to do with like the, the way traditional banking uh, has been for a while. And so when you think about more minority communities, it's not just um, the idea that you know some folks may be uh, second chance citizens or um, have passed convictions but that you know maybe they uh, were unable to bank with some of the big banks that were approved by um, you know folks in Washington and uh, I do uh, my hope is that in future I know we approved a new SBA uh, funds here well I, I think the Senate did I'm still waiting on the house right yeah um, my hope is that th there can still be some some um, some fixes to that but yes yeah, it's, it's inequitable in a, in a few different ways and my hope is that we, we learn from it and, and make the adjustment because, yeah, there, no, no business is greater than another in, in this kind of uh, pandemic. Well, and, you know, the, the majority of the jobs in this country are not created by Boeing or Apple or, you know, those the majority exactly right. of the jobs are, are small business owners. And especially when you're talking uh, communities that are traditionally underserved by, uh, by job opportunities, you know, if you get somebody who, regardless of anything that might have done in their past, they've paid their debt and they've come back in the community and they're willing to invest and create jobs and we do what we can to help them. I, I do, I do think, you know, there was a good, the very beginning of this, they did uh, roll back some restrictions on some of the, uh, on, on some things that, that the, uh, the community banks can do. I think that's, you know, I, I think. That's important. Yeah. When, you know, when, when we, when they, they did all the kind of reforms to the, after, after the 08 financial crisis, I think they, they did come a little, came a little heavy on, with with restrictions meant for big banks that also roped in community banks, I, you know, I'm glad that they were able to rope some of that stuff back because that that is going to help, especially in a state like Kentucky where you know you've got all these smattering of small banks spread all across the the state, and you know Bank of America may not give a loan to to the same company that you know the Bank of uh, you know Bank of Stanford might or you know one of these smaller community banks because they chances are they know the owners and even even if they they don't have the money or, or they have, you know, felony conviction in their past. They've, uh, they've, uh, you know, they know these folks. They probably know their parents. They know their, their background. And, you know, we need to give these banks the ability to, to be able to look at a person, look beyond everything else and figure out if, if, you know, they want to put their money on the line to get these people a loan. 
Did you guys catch any of the uh, language that was out there also on businesses that, um, I'll probably say this incorrectly, but the, the prurient interest standard? Uh, in other words, if you were a, a strip club or casinos and some other things to not apply for any of the, the relief funds because it was off the table, I caught a story on that this morning, I think, in the Wall Street Journal. So I thought that was kind of interesting because now it gets more nuanced, right, as we go back and mm. take another bite at the apple. So we're like, oh, that looks bad. It's like the Harvard thing. It's like, oh, we don't want to do that exactly. So, Well, like you, you've got an issue now where uh, uh, convenience stores, which in a, in a lot of a lot of communities, especially in r- both rural and urban, uh, more inner city communities, the convenience store may be your closest uh you know, grocery store to get basic supplies and stuff. Uh, grocery stores were not, in, or uh, convenience stores rather, were not included in that first round because they were they were classified as filling stations. Uh, despite mm. the fact, you know, they offer a lot more services than just gas. And so, I know they're they're trying to get back into into the. I, I haven't seen the bill to see if they're in the the included in the new round, but you know they're trying to get back into it because they're you know they have they have restaurant functions. They are selling toilet paper and other basic essential groceries and and you know they're important to keep keep up and running as well and i think the, the a big lesson for many I, I know it's true for me was you know when you see that top line that there's going to be a loan program that has forgivable loans for companies that have less than 500 employees i mean it just sounds great and i think what we learned is that there's some nuance in there that um that you know frankly we're missing and you know i i've had zero expectation that there would be I think the number was like, I was reading, I can't remember uh, which article, it might have been a Vox article, but they talked about how there were 75 publicly traded companies um, that had gotten loans while we're talking about hundreds of thousands of businesses that are still in the pipeline trying to figure, uh, trying to figure out how to access these resources. And, and you know, that's a problem. I mean, as always, if, if you've got uh, people that work for you that know how to know how to do the paperwork better than the whole team yeah <laughs> it's like it's, it's like uh, the movie old school is as dumb as they may seem they're remarkably good at paperwork yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um speaking of people who might need a future second chance well robert go forth we, we touched uh, on it a little bit briefly in the last episode now, now let me preface this by saying i do not like robert go forth uh when he was when he was running in that uh, special election, you know, we were just I was doing my job. I was researching. You know, would, Christian, you know, when you do do a campaign, it's as, as important to, to do research on yourself as it is to do research on your opponent. And I was asking questions of, to other people about st- uh, stories that I had heard in his background, none of which I can prove. So I'm not going to go into record on on the record on him here now. But you know, disturbing if if true. And word got back to him that I'd been asking questions on him. And, man, he came in all bug-eyed and crazy, closed the door in my office, and started yelling at me, like, at, at State Party headquarters. I, I am not a Robert Goforth fan, but, man, this is – I mean, the, the story originally was crazy. Then once you read, like, the details, good God. <laughs> like, tried to hogtie his wife and choke, choked oh, her with an Ethernet. Oh, I hadn't heard those details. Oh, yeah, ch- choked her with an Ethernet I had heard cable. about the Ethernet cord and that, but that's just – that's – yeah, and you know our 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 good friend Stephanie Seitzer, who does a lot of work with with uh, with victims of, of domestic violence, you know what she said is is you don't, you know you don't just go straight to choking, like that's not that's not like the rookie the rookie abuse yeah. move. Like you know there it gives concerns on on uh, you know when you go back to to where there were accusations made during the governor's primary last year that people 
didn't want to believe, didn't fully investigate. You know, it, I don't think it got the, the vetting that it should have. And I had heard similar things of that, that going back to 2008, you know, man, I mean, this is, <laughs> that's just a, a crazy, crazy story to come out and, and disturbing. And, you know, with three kids at home at the time, just, man, I mean, it, it, uh, and this guy, you know, this guy got almost 40% of the vote in a Republican primary less than, less than a year ago. Uh, yeah, it's it's, well, it's 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 yeah. It's hard to it's hard to find the the best words to say um, without uh, losing your cool. I just think um, that it, it was it was terrible news. There's again this this kind of domestic violence. We we have victims all across this state, and uh, I, I, I feel for them. And I feel for these families, but you know the women, the children, uh, particularly in some of these cases, uh, there's just no place for it, and. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, he's having to account for it. I mean, uh, you know, the, I think David Osborne and those guys, you know, they, I think they, they made the right statement, which is, and you know, until you've got some level of, of legal accounting, it's, it's hard to, hard to, sh- hard to shove somebody out the door. You know, I mean, it certainly doesn't look good, but you know, you, you want to at least, give a chance to get the legal accounting right. Cause you don't want to shove somebody, some, somebody at the door completely wrongly. Uh, I mean, you know, fortunately I, I don't have such a uh, need for, for being careful. And I've got, I, you got some verification. I, 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 I call, I call <laughs> for him to resign. I called for him to resign pretty much immediately. So <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got a pretty good Robert go for story, but it just, it, it is completely reasonable that I might actually be in Laurel County right now where I'm moving this boat. <laughs> and Laurel County is just not a good place for uh, for uh, Republican legislators right now. I mean, yeah. tough, <laughs> tough call, man. Yeah, Der- Derek Lewis had just had a, a little, few weeks. Uh, little overserved at a post-session party. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, the old I, single I, vehicle accident. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah, it's uh, Unfortunately, he didn't have a uh, a sheriff's deputy to come come uh, move him to the other side of the car like Stumbo did back in the day. But sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like I said, I, you know, I, I understand the the guys in the house. They they have you know legal things to consider, and and you know, they're they're speaking. But they speak. It's from a relatively official standpoint. Fortunately, I I have no official standing anymore, so I'm more than happy to call for him to resign, which I did immediately. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, just... he attempted to show up at a, uh, a rally that was taking place in the gubernatorial cycle, and he decided that he was going to endorse um, Governor Bevan at the, um, at the rally. Um, and he, I guess he wasn't aware of this, but the rally also included uh, the Vice President of the United States, and he actually thought he was just going to walk up on stage. <laughs> and, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, literally had to have – you know, secret service out there to, to engage with them. I, I've never seen anybody kind of as unhinged. Yeah. It's yeah. So anyway, <laughs> anyway story. I need uh, to get out of Laurel County that I can tell the full version. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the next big thing, uh, COVID related news would be, uh, uh, the, uh, the mayor here in Lexington. And, and I, I'll, I'll say, you know, we, we are, uh, we're, this is not a show about promoting candidates, but uh, but Christian is is a candidate for city council, and so I'm sure he's been doing. I only bring that up because I'm sure he's been doing some some studying on uh, on the functions of the city, how the city runs, what sort of you know what the budgets look like. I know that the mayor came out the other day and 
uh, talked about the shortfall we're facing and, and that there's going to have to be some cuts. Yeah, the uh, the number I think was forty million um, yeah. just for 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 scale. You know, we had to do some cuts to the budget last year, and that I mean, we we already uh, were having I think some some revenue issues um, in Fayette County. We had to cut about two million uh, from the budget. So just for scale, two million in twenty nineteen, um, just to get trying to get the budget right. Um, twenty twenty forty million dollars. Um, cut out of the budget. That that's a that's a pretty big deal. Um, I, I'm actually, you know, in the first, uh, I believe it was in the CARES Act. There was some dollars that went to uh, states and some cities. I think about 40 cities. There was a population cap. Or excuse me, not a population cap. A population floor of about. Uh, so if you were a city that had at least 500,000 uh, folks in your town, um, there was some emergency assistance dollars that that went to you. I'm actually an advocate for. Uh, cities like Lexington being able to um, have access to emergency funds. What you're going to see, I think, Nan Whaley and um, uh, another mayor, uh, I think the mayor of Kettering uh, up in Ohio, uh, got together and, and put together an op-ed in, in the USA Today talking about this very issue and just said, you, you're going to have so many cities um, that whose revenues are going to be just deeply impacted uh, by the slowdown of the economy. Uh, and the response to COVID, which is, you know, social distancing and the measures that we're taking are the right approach. But, you know, revenue is going to take a hit. And, you know, uh, we're going to have cities having to make a choice between, you know, the tools to fight this epidemic and uh, city services. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're in a tough spot here in Lexington. That budget is going to be quite austere, I believe. You know, I, I'm hopeful that uh, we, we've talked about it on the show before when the bill was rolling through. Uh, you know, there was a, a proposal for a constitutional amendment that would have, would have, would, it wouldn't have allowed cities and counties to, to pass other types of taxes, but it would have uh, loosened the chains to at least let the conversation occur. And when we had uh, uh, Ray Jones on, we talked about this a little bit, the, the tools in the toolbox for, for city and county governments to generate revenue are so incredibly limited in, in Kentucky. We have one of the most limited most limiting right. laws for city and county revenue generation in the in the country. Uh, you know, I saw a couple studies that, uh, like, I think out of the top five uh, cities who are most dependent on uh, on income tax based revenue, uh, I think th- three of the top five were in Kentucky, and the other two were in Ohio. Uh, and I think Lexington was one or two. And uh, like fifty fifty three percent of our of our uh, revenue was dependent on on. Things that, that are you know, Lexington's impacted by this. Lexington's yeah. unique in two other ways, right? So it's got its own pension fund for the hazardous duty employees, which is yep. unique. And it's also got the uh, – it has that restriction on furloughs. It's like the only – it's unique to the way that it's written. So Lexington is – LFUCG is the only uh, government in the state that is prohibited from doing furloughs of employees. And you think about it under the circumstances – you know, it just, it's one more, um, some, one other thing it's, you know, the city's tied behind its back on. Not that, not that that, I think that that is the appropriate way to get. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and t- until we allow people, city, local governments to get creative on revenue generation and not just say you can do it via insurance tax, hotel tax, or, or income tax only, you know, we're, we're, we're consistently going to run into this problem. It's just, it's exacerbated now and made worse. So, you know, if, if you kind of want to look for, for 
not necessarily silver linings, but progressive uh, policy measures that we can take in reaction to this that will that will have a broader effect beyond just pure immediate reaction, but but will make cities, counties, and, and states run better in the long term. I think that's one that that we need to look at is is taking taking the reins off of local governments and letting them letting them get creative on how they generate revenue. Well, I, I think that's an important um, conversation to have. But guys, I got to tell you, you know, in a pandemic where you got you know four hundred thousand people filing for unemployment, I mean, I. I'm 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 not sure how how creative we'd have to get to be able to make up for the revenue. Oh, we're that, we're not we're not making we're not making yeah. up. For I, I, I'm just I'm just saying I'm just saying I, I hope that it brings to light the problems that we've got on it. Uh, with, and with you know, and, and and you you look now too, uh, UK and U of L also massive layoffs. Uh, I know U of L the the uh, athletics department was hit particularly hard, which we talked we kind of talked about that last week with Dave Baker is. You know, once you don't have that athletics revenue, uh, especially from from football and and, and unique to most schools of uh, to to, to U of L and like and UK uh, basketball revenue, that 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 revenue rolling in, I mean, it's gonna it's gonna have a significant impact on the bottom line of not just athletic departments but overall universities. I think U of L had like three hundred forty layoffs or or, or furloughs. Uh, I know UK's got uh, had announced some as well. It's it's a problem we have to deal with. <laughs> I mean, I what, do you, what do you think the waiting list is like at the new dorms at UK right now? Think it's think it's uh, dropping a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. Probably a lot of parents looking looking forward to getting their kids out of the house, trying to. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have had you live at home, but never mind. Go to the dorms. Get the hell out. <laughs> uh, I guess last story I want to touch on before we kind of open open up the floor to to, to you guys is uh, Mike for Kentucky out hitting McGrath with a digital ad. We'll kind of go pure pure political <laughs> here for 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 once. We can act like we're not in the middle of a of a pandemic and talk pure politics. I, I thought that was an interesting ad, and I thought the the uh, Twitter reaction to it was interesting because Charles Booker caught almost more crap on it for not attacking McGrath than Mike did for attacking McGrath. Because it, you know, it seems to me, and I tweeted this yesterday, it seems to me like Booker, I, first of all, let me say, I don't think either of them have a chance now. I, th- I think they needed, they needed to be able to hold rallies and do grassroots organizing and be able to show momentum on the ground to be able to have a shot at McGrath. I think McGrath now, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a pure air and spending war, and I think she's just going to be able to, to overpower him. But I, I think it's, it's interesting that Booker doesn't, <laughs> he's not, differentiating himself from McGrath at all. He's, he's, he's not hitting her, which it kind of seems to me like he's running for Senate to, to up his profile for something else. He's not necessarily playing to win, whereas Mike's out throwing punches, at least trying, you know, give, giving it a shot. Christian is a, is, is, is a Democrat operative. I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, on kind of how that, that primary is playing out uh, now that Mike's out with kind of the first knock on McGrath. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think um... – if you look at this primary, look at the fundraising report in this primary, um, Amy McGrath has shown herself to be kind of the clear leader among this field. And, nationally. Um, <laughs> he, 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 uh, nationally. Even, you know, outraise uh, Mitch McConnell, which is not an easy feat um, in, this last, in this last quarter. So um, when, when you look at the numbers of um, both Charles and, and Mike, it's just, it's, it, 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 it's not in the same universe, right? Um, I do think it's important that, you know, I, again, I'm, I, I'm a Democrat. I, I want to honor this primary. 
I think, you know, all three of these candidates are, are lifting up uh, the issues that we need to be talking about. Uh, also, I believe that, you know, a good kind of robust primary um, serves us well. I think, you know, it's what we saw in the governor's primary, and that ended up pretty, pretty, going pretty well for us. And so we have an opportunity to do that again and have folks mobilize in the way they haven't before. Um, I, I, I've seen more of Charles Booker's kind of organization at work, you know, folks making phone calls. He's very kind of active on digital media. I think there's some, there's some, uh, some, some things about this current context that kind of work in his favor because I think he's a very, that's a very digitally native, young and fresh kind of campaign. Um, but, you know, the Amy McGrath machine is a behemoth and, and they've, uh, they've been able to uh, really show that. I just think, I think Booker. And Booker. For, for Mike, let me just say very quickly for Mike, you know, we're starting to get late in the primary and, you know, I would, for Mark, Mike is probably, in conversations I have, he's, he's, he's probably number three uh, um, in terms of the folks that I'm talking to and, and where they are and, and who they know that's, you know, running. Uh, and I think, you know, a decent way to try to make a splash is to, you know, uh, throw an attack at, at um, Amy McGrath. Now, I've only seen that. I've seen that ad, but I've just seen it kind of posted on Twitter and the couple of kind of news sources that have uh, written about it. I'm not sure if there's like an ad by there, if they, you know, they've really, you know, I'm trying assuming, to put something behind it. I'm assuming it's pure digital. And I'm also assuming that I would not be in a target universe for it. So I'm not shocked. That I, <laughs> <laughs> that I have not seen it on there. Uh, but yeah, yeah I'm, so I'm, I'm assuming it's like a pre-roll well. or Facebook or something. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good way to try to, you know, try to get some, get some eyeballs and, and, and to try to, you know, get into this game at the, um, you know, late in this primary, but I, I just don't know how much time is left. I mean, it just seems to me, you know, and going back to Booker, it seems to me like if 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 your goal is to win, you know, you're going to have to differentiate yourself and, and give somebody a reason not to vote for McGrath. It can't just be, I'm great, vote for me. You got to have, because she's she's in the lead. I, mean, I think that's probably unquestioned. So you got to give people a reason to to say, you know, don't vote for her, vote for me. And it's it's not just going to be I'm I, I'm great. You know, I I think if he's if if he's not just running to, to generate name ID for a mayor run or run for Congress or you know something else, he he's gonna he's gonna have to to take a shot at her at some point. And you know I'm, I'm well, interested to see if that happens or or if he or if he just says she's got twelve twelve million dollars, I got you know five hundred thousand. I'm a I'm you know if it, if things had gone different, he might be out there throwing punches, but he might just be riding it out right now. Yeah, I, th I think win or lose, Charles Booker's got a long career uh, in politics here in Kentucky. Uh, you know, one thing about the primary is that it's typically a lower turnout. And if you're on the book, if you're in the Booker camp, you're probably thinking there, um, there's an opportunity there for me to put together the kind of coalition that may not typically engage um, uh, in a primary or um, may not you know, may not have Amy McGrath as their number one pick, but you can kind of piece together the kind of coalition that could, you know, make you competitive uh, in the uh, formerly May, now June uh, primary. Um, and yeah, so I, I figured that, that could be a part of the math that they're um, putting together over there. I'll, I'll say this from what I see, because I still have, you know, columns on my tweet deck and stuff where I keep an eye on some of the some of the the nuts on the left that I've always monitored while I was at the party, and you know that that among that group, kind of kind of the the net roots Democrats, they are they are not Amy McGrath fans, and you know they they are going to show up on election day, 
regardless of of if it's if it's mail in or absentee or or what the voting process is. And so I guess you know may, maybe the one path for Booker to victory if he if he's going to win the primary is just the the person you know the 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 three out of four voter who's 65 years old and sits at home, watches TV and decides the day before the election based on the ad, they last ad they saw who they're going to vote for. That person may not show up to vote on election day, but these, these net roots kind of the online activist types who uh, appear to be getting behind either Mike or Booker uh, as opposed to McGrath. Uh, you know, it, I guess maybe that's, that's the path to victory for, for Booker is the, the, they have an outsized influence in the primary versus a regular year because the turnout's even even below normal. Yeah, I think I, I, again, I think if I'm at their table doing the math, that's that's probably how I'm thinking about it. But to your point, um, Amy McGrath has she also has just a, a clear advantage. And if this ends up being a battle, um, you know, waged on on media, on television, and mailbox, uh, it's 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 going to be tough to overcome. What I, I but what I do think at the what I do think at the end of the day, and the thing that's probably you know top of mind for Democrats is being the strongest possible after the primary. And so, uh, again, similar to the governor's race, if you can have, um, you know, Democrats of all stripes, who you know they see themselves in at least one of these candidates. If we, you know, you have candidates who can cut across urban and rural. I mean, I just think if we can have the whole state mobilized and engaged in the same way. Um, that we had in 2019 because of, in part because of, a robust primary and a solid foil uh, in Matt Bevin. Um, I, I think uh, we can be successful in November. I, I just think, I think because we're going to have to run the, these elections different this year, it's going to be a lot more absentee voting, which in Kentucky is difficult to deal with from from a from a functional campaign side. I'm sure you've run this, Christian, especially after, you know, we used to back in the day, I remember in 07, I helped run you couldn't really do a true absentee chase program. You kind of could. Uh, before McGrath, or before McGrath, before Grimes came into office and Grimes changed this, and I, I don't know if, if Adams would change it back or not, you used to be able to do open records requests for absentee ballot request forms. So in 07, when I was at the state party, we had uh, some county officials just, would just let us let us put an uh, a, a open records request on file with them, and they'd just send it to us every day. Some of them, like Haven King down in Hazard, would literally make me fax them an open records request every single morning. Every to get day, every day <laughs> for for like thirty days, I, I sent Haven King a fax. Um, and and you could do you could do a chase program. You know, you could figure out who'd requested an absentee ballot. You could you could mail them a piece, say, hey, I know you requested absentee ballot. We'd love it if you'd vote for for you know, our guy. Here's some paperwork, and you can maybe follow up with a phone call or whatever. Uh, as of right now, you cannot do that in Kentucky. And so it's, it's going to be incredibly hard and incredibly expensive to reach those voters, figure out who might be voting absentee, who might be voting by mail, who might be voting absentee in person, uh, try to, try to get to these people and, and earn their vote or try to get your people activated to get out to vote. You know, it might take more persuasion for a three, three out of four voter or two out of four voter to, say no you know it's it's a it's safe you can do it you know and b we need you to go out and vote it's i think it's going to be a very you're going to see more money spent on the grassroots voter turnout side this year than than you would see in a a regular election yeah and and we may be better for it honestly um i think well just in terms of you know the doing the work to to connect with folks and get them the information they need about the the election i do i think that's important um you know, I do, I, you know, I'm concerned about, 
you know, I think there was more time spent thinking about, uh, you know, if you let me be partisan for just for a quick second, there's more time spent, <laughs> you know, thinking about this photo, photo ID bill than, um, you know, the real concerns that, you know, we have having a vote in this, you know, within the context of this COVID virus. Well, I, I think, I think Mike Adams is working on that because a lot of that stuff, a lot of the changes and things that have to be done don't necessarily need to be done legislatively. It's going to be uh, the secretary of state and the governor coming up with an order and putting it forward. You know, the one thing I'm worried about is, is, is the mail-in voting. Uh, it, I, I understand it works great in a lot of places. It works great in Oregon, works great in Colorado, wherever. There's two states I would say don't, no, don't do mail-in voting. It's Kentucky and Louisiana because we, have, we just have a, a cultural history of, tr- of treating of the vote becoming a, a commodity or a transactional item in, in, in these states. And you do mail-in voting, man, I just, the, and, and, and maybe the states progressed beyond the last time that I worked a race in, in east, east and West Kentucky. I don't think it has in that, that short amount of time, but I, I, I worry about shenanigans there on the ground uh, and less, less in the U S Senate race more in some of the more local elections, but you know, it'll have impact up and down the, the, the ballot. It's, you, you, in this state specifically, you're opening up a lot of dangers if you, if you do mail-in voting. Trey, do you make a distinction between the, the idea of doing uh, no excuse absentee uh, versus a mail-in? Uh, yeah, because mail, mail-in, the idea is that they, they would just send everybody a ballot. A, a ballot. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think no or significantly reduced excuse. I mean, I, I think we need to, ex- to reduce excuses for absentees anyways. Like right now, if you're, if you're, if, if you're, if you're, if you're, if your wife's pregnant and in the hospital giving birth, she's excused, but you're not, that's garbage. You know, if you're there, we need more excuses. We also, the polls also need to be open, open later at night. I mean, you know, we need to make, I'm not a fan of early voting. Okay. Uh, we're, we're on the same page there, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we can make things easier for people to vote without, taking some of the extreme steps that I don't like, like early voting and, and uh, uh, mailing every registered voter an absentee ballot or uh, uh, yeah, uh, mailing every voter a ballot. That, that's where you, to me, that's where you get into, into a dangerous situation when you're just have, mailing, mailing have, ballots out. Have I heard Adams make some references to, to being willing to explore mailing? I think he said he doesn't like it, but if it's, if it's the only option, you know, he, he's, he's not taking anything off the table right now, but I, I know he's expressed that he is not a fan of it. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there's, there's a set, there's a, there's a way. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not laying out, you know, sort of a, a, a platform around voting, although, you know, we can save another episode for, for me to do that. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, that within this current context, um, again, there's a, there's a, there's a global pandemic outside. Right, and I think you know, uh, I do think it's important to keep our options on the on the table. It, um, and I think whatever year. they do needs to be it needs to be put in a in a in the order or you know legally enshrined some other way that this is this is in response to to a pandemic. This is not to be considered some sort of uh, prior precedent for for future action. That you know, this is we're, we're doing this for this year and this year only. You know, it's not going to be good, and, and you can't consider it a lawsuit later if you want to revert to it. You know, we're, we're doing it this year. If you want to consider it for a future law change, you know, introduce a bill. But the stuff that we do this year is 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 in consideration of this. Because uh, I, I, do, I do think there's going to be – we're going to have to do things that people like me, people like Mike Adams, don't necessarily like, but we're going to do it because it's what has to be done. But we also don't want it to become permanent policy. 
the, pro- the problem uh, probably comes when we, you know, we, we we put it in practice and gosh, it just works so well. No, I mean, if, hey, if mail-in voting works well and, and, and we don't have people out in East Kentucky just like, you know, rolling up in a holler and picking up a basket full of, full of votes, then, you know, maybe we can look at it. But I, you know, I've, I've worked, I've worked campaigns on the ground <laughs> all over the state. And I'm just, I'm just saying, I got serious concerns over the way I, that mail-in voting would function. <laughs> I don't know why you give my friends in East Kentucky such a hard time. Oh, right? they're my friends. Hey, they're my friends too. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I told you the other day, I said, you know, if you want to stimulate the economy, East Kentucky, let's do mail-in voting and help, help all out. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, you got anything else for the order, man? Or where 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 are you now? You're you're on mute, Tom. Oh, you're muted. <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, we're we are uh, we're on our way back. I think things things are looking up. <laughs> you're having success. Yeah, no, it was good. Um, where where are we right now? Where are we? Just outside of Somerset. Just outside of Somerset. Riveting radio here. Yeah, well, I know. There's nothing more exciting. I've got a, I've got a, a, a face for radio, Trey. <laughs> yeah, fun, uh, fun fact about me, Trey, uh, my, my first visit to Kentucky was to Somerset to go to church. Very I was good. driving up from Alabama, driving up from, from Alabama for weekend revivals in Somerset before I knew what Lexington and Louisville was. <laughs> and just to be clear, you, you're, you're, you came up here to go to Berea, correct? That's right. I'm, I'm from a place called Alabaster, Alabama. Um, right between, uh, if you know Alabama, it's between Birmingham and Montgomery. And uh, yeah, I, I moved up uh, to Kentucky to go to Berea back in 2005. Last summer, I texted Christian as we were driving by a sign that pointed the way to Alabaster, Alabama. Sent you a Twitter message. <laughs> the, the, the in and out is very fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps it up for this week on Kentucky Politics Weekly. Christian Motley, thank you for coming on with us, man. I've enjoyed you guys. Yeah. And uh make sure uh you uh, check us out on anywhere you get streaming podcasts. Uh we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh Spotify, anywhere you can get on my iHeartRadio, uh radio.com. If you get us on uh, Apple Podcasts, give us a a, a review. And uh, we'll be back with you next uh, Tuesday on Kentucky Politics Weekly.